Our sermon text is basically 1 Corinthians 11, verse 28, but we're going to read verses 27 uh, to 32, just for the sake of context. Give ear to God's word. It says, Paul writes, Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's, uh, let's pray and ask God to teach us his word once again. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, every, every last bit of it, every jot and tittle is given by your uh, inspiration. It's breathed out by you, and it's, uh, it's all going to be fulfilled. Not a word of yours will fall to the ground. And so we ask, uh, Lord, that, uh, that you would teach us your word by your spirit. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things. And once again, we ask that you would help us to be doers of your word and not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. For it's in Christ's name and for his glory that we pray. Amen. Well, because it's Communion Sunday, I thought it would be good to take a look at Paul's instructions in his first epistle, his first letter to the Corinthian church. And we're going to spend most of our time, we're going to look at that whole text we read a little bit, but we're going to focus mostly on verse 28. And that's where Paul says, let a person or let a man examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. You know, it's one of those passages, where you, maybe you hear it a lot, we say it probably just about every time we have the Lord's Supper, uh, but there are many different ideas floating around about what that means to examine ourselves. We are commanded there by Paul, by the Word of God, to examine ourselves prior to coming to the Lord's table, and this implies uh, first and foremost, uh, something that may seem obvious, it may not, that in some sense, you and I need to prepare for worship. We need to be preparing ourselves for worship in general and for the Lord's Supper in particular. That means we have to prepare to some degree ahead of time before we actually walk through the door uh, on, on Sundays. And it's for that reason that uh, you might know the Westminster Standards include, it's an odd-sounding part of the book to our modern ears, but it includes what's called the Westminster Directory for Public Worship. Now, when you hear the word directory, you probably think of a phone book or something like that. Directory in this particular case means a book of direction. It tells us how to do something. It gives us the directions or instructions on how we are to order public worship in accordance with the Word of God. And it instructs that whenever the sacrament of the Lord's Supper is is not frequently administered, you know, some churches do it every week, uh, some, some do not. Some actually have it once a quarter, if you can imagine waiting that long to have the Lord's Supper. But for different reasons, different churches do that. Whenever it's not frequently administered, it says, quote, it is requisite, it's needful, that public warning, not warning in a bad sense, but advance notice, be given the Sabbath day before when it's administered. So the people, why is that? So the people might know ahead of time, we're going to have the Lord's Supper next Lord's Day. We have it every first Sunday, so I trust that most of us, most of you, at least the regular attenders, you know you've kind of picked up on that. Every first Sunday, we're going to have the Lord's Supper, Lord willing. Uh, it gives you the time to uh, to think about it, to prepare yourselves ahead of time. Uh, where, you know, worship in general takes preparation, not just by myself, not just by the person playing the music and, 
and whatnot. But uh, did you know that listening to a sermon takes effort on your part, not just mine? That may be new to some of you, but it takes effort in preparation on your part. It's not just a preacher who does all the work, although it sometimes may seem that way. Uh, you might think that all that goes into listening to a sermon is to show up and listen, and that's a good start. Larger Catechism 160. Larger Catechism 160. It says, what is required of those that hear the word preached? It says, it is required of those that hear the word preached that they attend upon it with diligence, preparation, and prayer, examine what they hear by the scriptures, receive the truth with faith, love, and meekness, and readiness of mind as the word of God. Meditate and confer of it, hide it in their hearts, and bring forth the fruit of it in their lives. I had trouble even probably keeping track of all that. It's such a long paragraph to way that we think. It's a lot of things that we are all expected to do when we attend upon the preaching of the word of God. And so there are things that are required of you and I as the listener as well as the preacher to get the most out of the preaching of God's word on the Lord's Day. And so you think about that. Sometimes it's not just my preparation that means what you might get out of it, but it's also your own preparation goes a lot into what you may or may not get out of the preaching of the word. And what are some of those things that question 160 mentioned that's required of the listener to get something out? The first thing, we have to attend upon it with all diligence. With all diligence, I mean, show up for worship on Sundays, on the Lord's Day. Make it your habit and your priority to be there every Sunday as it's as much as it depends upon you to do so. Second, attend upon it with preparation. With preparation. Again, what would you say if I told you that in, in a lot of ways, not to excuse myself from effort, but a lot of times what you get out of the sermon depends on what you do before the sermon even starts and what you do during the sermon and afterward as well. Uh, you know, the way that you spend your time on Saturdays has a large influence on the quality of the time you spend in worship on Sundays. Do you get enough sleep as much as depends upon you to do so? We can't always do that, but or do you stay up late at night the night before? Do you read through the sermon text prior to worship? I hope that if you have the opportunity to do that, that you do, even the night before the service, to read through the text and try to think of some questions about the text and what the text means. Thirdly, do all this with prayer, it says. To prayerfully read through these things, the sermon passage and other things. Do we prayerfully prepare for worship? Do we prayerfully read through the sermon text ahead of time? Asking God to give us understanding into his word. At the end of the day, we have to pray. You know, we pray before the sermon every Sunday. And I know that, you know, I'm a, I'm a creature of habit. Maybe you are too. And, you know, we have, you know, if you look at the bulletin from Sunday to Sunday, there isn't a lot of variance. There's almost no change in the general scope of things. And so we do this here. We do that there. And we might think, well, pastor always prays before the sermon. Whoever prays the prayer of thanksgiving and supplication sometimes We'll pray for the sermon, and we just do that. But we do that because we can't learn God's word rightly without God being the one who teaches us. The next thing it says there is that we are to examine what we hear by the scriptures. Where do you hear, where, where in the Bible do you see the example of that given? It's in the book of Acts, in Acts 17, verse 11, talking about the Bereans. It says, now these Jews, the ones in Berea, were more noble than those in Thessalonica, and now, if you read Thessalonians, it seems like they were pretty good, you know, too. But it says, more noble than those in Thessalonica. Why? They received the word, the preaching of the word of God. They received the word with all eagerness 
And then Luke adds, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And this is kind of a picture of what Rob was talking about This, in some regard. This was a much more organized gathering, maybe in a synagogue or someplace. Uh, but, you know, the word was preached. They wanted to hear it. They were being probably preached from the Old Testament. That was the scriptures they knew of at the time. And what did they do? They eagerly received it and they checked it. They said, Paul said this, and they checked the scriptures to see if what he said was true to scripture. And, and you know that what he said was. And so they were many of them convinced to believe. They received the word with all eagerness. What a great picture of the, the attitude and of heart that we should have toward the preaching, the, the, the true preaching of the word of God every Sunday. And their eagerness to, to receive the word of God actually led them not to just go, ah, you know, that's what it says. They examined the scriptures daily to see if those things were so. Now, if that's the case, how much more should we who hear the word of God preach today, not by an apostle? I'm no apostle. You don't know. You'll never meet an apostle this side of heaven. And if Paul was happy that they checked what he said by the scriptures, no pastor should ever expect you to take our word for anything. Don't take the word of anybody that stands in this pulpit. Check what we say. Check what I say by the word of God to see if those things are so. And the last thing that question in the catechism mentions is that we must receive those things, receive the truth with faith, love, meekness, and readiness of mind as the word of God, meditate and confer on it, hide it in their hearts, and bring forth the fruit of it in our lives. In other words, once we have uh, prepared, prayed, listened, examined to see what was said in the sermon according to the word of God, and found it to be true to the word of God, we should receive it as the very word of God. We should Think about it. We should receive it with faith. That means trusting in it, believing in it with love and humility. It means meditating and thinking upon it after the sermon, discussing it, even memorizing it or keeping it in mind, and applying it or obeying it, bearing forth the fruit of it in our lives. No sermon is to be trivial. It's not just there for information's sake, even though there's always a lot of information, I think, in it. What does James one twenty two say? But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So hear, hearing the sermon is only the beginning. It's a good start, but much more must follow after that. And so not only do we have to pray, prepare for worship, prepare for hearing the word of God, but we also have to prepare for the Lord's Supper. Thomas Watson, my favorite Puritan writer, he says this, Does Christ offer his body and blood to us in the supper? then with what solemn preparation should we come to such an ordinance? It's still a happy, joyful thing, but it's there's a solemnity to it. There's a reverence that should go into what we do in all aspects of worship, but also with the Lord's Supper. I, I hope that you look forward to worship every Lord's Day. I hope that, that, that you know that Sunday is the best day of the week, but I hope even more so that you look forward to Communion Sunday even more than every other Sunday. We should look, you know, when you look forward to something, what do you do? Nobody even has to tell you to prepare for it. You know, people prepare for all kinds of big things, you know, whether it be family gatherings, holidays, nothing wrong with that. People prepare, it's not as good as church, but people even prepare for football. If they have a game that week, they set all kinds of things in order to make sure nothing screws that up. And yet how much more should we do that? when we gather around the Lord's table as his, his people. You know, the fact that, that we need to prepare for the Lord's Supper and examine ourselves according to Paul's instruction here in our text 
It's actually a part of the reason, and maybe it's the main reason, why uh, in most Reformed churches we don't practice what's called pedo communion We are pedo-baptists. That's a weird-sounding word. We, we baptize babies. Pedo is a, the old word, an old Greek term that, that referred to infants. But we don't, we don't practice pedo communion We don't allow small children to partake of the Lord's Supper. Our plan this morning, it didn't come to pass, obviously, with Ben being sick, but we planned on having him take his membership vows as a communicant member. We, we interviewed him. We found his, his profession of faith in Christ to be more than credible, and he's able to understand what the table represents, what it signifies and seals. Uh, he's able to examine himself. He's of sufficient age. But most small children are not. They're not able to examine themselves before the Lord's Supper. They're not really able to examine themselves to see whether or not they are in the faith. And the Lord's table, unlike baptism, requires self-examination, something a small child or infant can't do. In fact, larger Catechism 177 says, the Lord's Supper is to be administered, quote, only to such as are of years and ability to examine themselves. That's the main difference. You might know that, as we even read recently, the text of the Passover in Exodus 12, Exodus 12 involved children. The Passover involved children, but children who were able to discern and be asked and answered questions. It says, you know, when they were instituting the Passover, there were instructions given in Exodus 12 on on how children were to participate. Exodus 12, verses 26 and 27, it says there, And when your children say to you, What do you mean by this service? The Passover. What do you mean by this service? You shall say, It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. In other words, when they were having, they were, you know, every every year at Passover, you would sacrifice a lamb, do all the things as set forth in that chapter. And the children, of, once they got to a certain age, might start asking, what does this mean? Maybe when you were a child, you might remember, maybe you asked your parents or someone in the church, what is this table about? What is it? Why do we eat this little piece of bread? Why do we drink this little cup of, of wine or juice? What's it all about? Why do we do that? Well, it gives you an opportunity to instruct them on what we're doing, what it represents, it signifies, and, and seals. The children of sufficient age to learn and understand these things uh, were to be instructed in the same way we are to do the same thing today. We ought to faithfully instruct our children in the things of the Lord, and when they're ready, they might ask us what we mean by these things, and at some point when they understand, we can bring them to the Lord's table. And that brings us to something that Paul says about each of us, about examining ourselves. You know, now, now the, the context in this letter of what's going on in Corinth, there were a lot of problems there in the church at Corinth, but it was still a, a good, godly church, but they had problems. And what were they doing there with the Lord's Supper? It's kind of hard for us to picture uh, this, but they were, they were observing it in such a way that Paul even says in verse 20 of the chapter, of chapter 11, that what they were doing, they were doing it in such a way that he says, when you come together, you're not even really partaking of the Lord's Supper at all. Now, outwardly, were they doing that? Yes. They were doing, you know, outwardly speaking, what they were supposed to do. And Paul says, you're, you're doing it so badly. You're doing something in your fellowship so wrong that you're eating bread and drinking the cup, but you're really not having the Lord's Supper at all because of what you're doing with it, what, the way that they were abusing it. They were abusing it in such a way that it, it turned on its head the very nature of the sacrament. 
you know, one of the things that this, this table is meant to do, you know, I say this every first Sunday of the month in some way, it's, it's about assurance. The table is meant to make believers in Christ grow in our assurance of God's love for us and his forgiveness of our sins. It's meant to strengthen us in God's grace, but it's also meant to not just strengthen our communion with the Lord, it's also meant to strengthen our communion with each other. Elsewhere, Paul talks about, because we are of one loaf, we partake of one bread. He's talking about the body being unified. This is meant to be something that unifies us in the Lord, that strengthens our sense of unity and love for one another in the Lord. But the Corinthians, at the time Paul wrote this letter, were observing, it's hard to even picture it in your head, they were observing the Lord's Supper in such a way as to put those who had less off to the side. People that had a lot, what they were doing was, he even says some of you were getting drunk. They used wine, right? They didn't use grape juice. Nobody got drunk on Welch's. But he says some of you were even getting drunk. You're abusing this thing. And you're making those who have less feel neglected and divided. So they were, it was fostering division. And so what does Paul say in our text, verse 27 to 32 again? He says, whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the, or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. And what's his what's his uh, his remedy? He says, let a person, verse 28, let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why, shockingly enough, when you hear this, many of you are weak and ill, and some have died or fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. With the world, So we are to be on guard uh, against eating and the bread and drinking the cup of the Lord in, in an unworthy manner. Notice that Paul doesn't say, it's easy to kind of mistake what he's saying here. He doesn't say unworthy people. He doesn't say, you're not worthy of the Lord's table, and until you're worthy, don't come. Is any Are any of us in this room worthy of the Lord's table on our own? No. If, if, if it was a matter of being worthy of the table, those dishes should remain covered, and we should skip part of the service, because none of us have had a good enough week to have the Lord's Supper. None of us are good enough or righteous enough to have it. He talks about people partaking of it in an unworthy manner or an unworthy way because no one's worthy of God's grace. But what does it mean to be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord in this way by what they were doing? Charles Hodge uh, writes this, The man who tramples on the flag of his country insults his country as he who treats with indignity uh, the representative of a sovereign thereby offends the sovereign himself. In a like manner, he who treats the symbols of Christ's body and blood irreverently is guilty of irreverence towards Christ. You know, some of you I know may have been raised in a Roman Catholic uh, church background or some other similar kind of thing, and you know where they exalt, you know, they hold up the elements and things, and they they revere them. And we don't, we aren't for that. But at the same time, we should not treat these things irreverently either. We don't exalt the bread and the cup but we don't treat them in an irreverent manner either as well. So how are we then to make sure that we don't partake in an unworthy manner? That's a pretty important question if we're understanding our text. Uh, how do we make sure that we're not becoming guilty of the body and blood of Christ? Paul tells us in verse 28. The key is self-examination. 
Self-examination. Now, this passage has often been misunderstood in such a way. Uh, I have I have experienced it myself. Maybe you have as well. It's been misunderstood and sometimes taught in such a way as to frighten off even sincere believers from partaking of the Lord's Supper. You know, they they sometimes say, you know, examine yourself, and you think to yourself, have I had a good enough week? Have I had my quiet times enough? Have I, you know, you start thinking of as as if it's a qualification thing. That's not that's not what it's about. That's not what self-examination is about. It's far from what Paul is talking about. Paul isn't saying, make sure you've been good this week, and then you can have the Lord's Supper. It's meant to strengthen you in God's grace. It's meant to strengthen you in the faith. What that means is that we are weak. We need we need to be made strong by it. Elsewhere, Hodge also says uh, that when when uh, when he writes uh, to eat or drink unworthily, is he says not to eat or drink. With a consciousness of unworthiness, that's not what, what unworthy partaking is. He says, for such a sense of ill desert is one of the conditions of acceptable communion. It's not the whole, but the consciously sick whom Christ came to heal, uh, nor is it to eat with doubt and misgivings about our being duly prepared to come to the Lord's table for such doubts, although an evidence of weak faith indicate a better state of mind than indifference or false security. If you have weak faith, Join the club. If you have weak faith, this table is for you. It's not just for the strong. It's meant to strengthen the weak. Uh, the larger catechism, question 171, explains what the self-examination means. It's a little bit long, but it says, How are they that receive the sacrament of the Lord's Supper to prepare themselves before they come unto it? How are we to prepare? It says, They that receive the sacrament of the Lord's Supper before they come are to prepare themselves for it, quote, by examining themselves of their being in Christ, of their sins and wants or lacks, uh, of the truth and measure of their knowledge, faith, repentance, love to God and the brethren, charity to all men, forgiving those that have done them wrong, of their desires after Christ and of their new obedience, and by renewing the exercise of these graces by serious meditation and fervent prayer. That sounds like a long list Sounds like an overwhelming list in some way, but the first thing is to ask whether you're you're a Christian or not. The most important part of self-examination, and it shouldn't take too terribly long for most believers, is to ask yourself whether or not you are a Christian. If you're not a believer in Christ, this table is not yet for you, but are you trusting in Christ? Are you trusting in his, in his blood and his righteousness alone for your salvation from sin and death? The passage Rob read from Galatians 3, you know, no flesh shall be justified by the works of the law. Are you trusting in your own good works for your right standing before God? If so, then this table's not yet for you because you're not a Christian. No man, no flesh will be justified in God's sight by the works of the law. In fact, by the works of the law, as Paul says in Romans, is the knowledge of sin. The law shows us, first and foremost, that we've broken it. It doesn't show us we've kept it. It shows us we've broken it. If we hadn't broken it, there'd be no need for it. Are you trusting in your own goodness to make you right with God? If so, that's that's a bad sign. For Second uh, Corinthians thirteen five, Paul says, "Examine yourselves." Same same phrase. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Examine yourselves. It's a common refrain in Scripture. It's only the righteousness of Jesus Christ. His death in our place for our sins that can make us right with the Holy God. And so if you've turned to Christ by faith, 
and turn from your sins, that this table is for you. Remember, as Paul says in verse 26, in eating the bread and drinking the cup, you're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. It's a reminder of the death of Christ and his resurrection. That's the only way of salvation for sinners. The next thing we're supposed to ask ourselves and examine ourselves about is whether or not there are particular sins or weaknesses that we need to repent of. Are we believing in the truth of God's word? Are we striving to know God and his word better? Do we sincerely love God who loved us first? Do we love our brethren, our fellow believers in Christ? Do we love our neighbors? Do we have a fervent desire for Christ? And do we, just, do we really have a sincere desire to live for and follow his commandments in obedience? That's something that we should think about when we come to this table. Lastly, we need to renew the exercise of all these graces by a serious meditation and fervent prayer. We need to think on these things. We need to pray. It sounds like a lot to do, but it's, it's one of the one of the good things this table is meant to help us to do. None of us are sufficient for these things. Maybe when I read that that catechism question, you felt a little bit overwhelmed. Well, in some ways, it just shows us more and more our need for Christ, which this table points us to again. And again, you know, having the Lord's Supper on a regular basis is one of the, one of the things it does. It signs and seals the gospel of Christ to us, but it reminds us of our need for Christ. Just as you need food to live, you need the bread of life uh, and the cup, which signifies his blood for life in this world until we're in heaven. That's what the Lord's Supper is about. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Who do you proclaim it to? Yourself first and each other as well. So whenever we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we should use it, if I could use this kind of a, of a, of a phrase, we should use it as a spiritual checkup of sorts. You know, you're supposed to go to the doctor once a year, or whatever it is. Uh, this should be a checkup for us, a time for us to, to examine ourselves, to see if we're in the faith, to examine our lives, to see what in what things we need to grow, what things we need to repent of, and to seek the grace of God in the gospel of Christ, even in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, for our spiritual benefit and growth in grace. Verse 29, Paul says, he kind of here, he kind of gives us the whole gist of the thing. He says, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. What does it mean to discern the body? That's kind of the key here. Uh, for years, theologians have wrestled with how to rightly understand this phrase. It's kind of divided between a couple things at least as far as what people think it means. The first thing is, does discerning the body refer to the body of Christ broken for us in the sign of that broken bread? Or does it refer to the church as the body of Christ? That's really the context of the whole passage. And I, I'm going to cheat and say maybe both. Maybe you don't have to choose one or the other. You know, the first thing you have to be mindful of is the bread does point us to the body of Christ broken for our salvation. It should give us a holy reverence of mind and heart for what we're doing when we meet at the Lord's table. But it also does in turn point us to the body of Christ as the church and the union and communion that we have, not just with Christ by faith, but with each other in the church. I think that's actually the main thing Paul has in mind here. That was the main sin going on. Now the two are related, right? If you're if you're abusing the sign and seal of Christ's body and blood, that's irreverence toward what we're doing. But at the same time, the main thing they were doing was abusing uh, each other in the church. And so the problem in Corinth, the sin for which they were being disciplined and chastised by the Lord, no less, 
was neglect or abuse of those who had less than themselves in the church during the supper. They were dividing the church where the Lord's Supper should be seen as fostering assurance and unity among believers in Christ. Paul tells us here in our text that as harsh as it sounds, that discipline was for our good. Verses 30 to 32, he says, That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined or chastised, so that we may not be condemned along with the Lord. He's not talking about people losing their salvation. But he is talking, remember this morning, early in the service, I mentioned from the fifth commandment, there's a, it's, Paul says it's the first commandment with a promise. God blesses obedience by his grace. We don't earn anything. He often rewards our good works by his grace, not that we earn anything. But at the same time, on the, on the converse side, on the flip side of that, God chastises us at times for our disobedience. He, he does. He always has like any good father does. And he does it for our good. What does it say there? We, when we're judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, verse 32, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. God loves us too much to let us go on and on in sin like that. It's a mark of his fatherly love. His fatherly displeasure against us at times, his chastisement, is actually a mark of his love for us. If God were not to care about us going on in sin enough to stop us and to turn us around from it, what kind of father would he be? No good father does such a thing. And so we, if they had examined themselves in the Corinthian church and judged themselves rightly, rather than placing themselves above their brethren in the supper, they would not have been judged and disciplined in the way that they were. God's fatherly discipline on, uh, on his people is for their good. It's for our good. So we should examine ourselves and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Paul Again, Paul doesn't say, you better not take it. His, his solution is not uh, better safe than sorry. You better not take it this week. You might not take it next month. He says, examine yourselves. See if you're in the faith. Examine how you're treating each other in the church And if there's a problem, repent of it, and then come and eat of the table. Come and eat the bread and drink the cup of the Lord. So let us be mindful of the love of Jesus Christ for us in dying for our in our place and rising from the dead for our justification. On the third day, let us be mindful of the communion that we have, uh, that we now share, not just with the Lord himself, which we do at this table, but also with each other. This, This table should be something that strengthens the unity of the church. And let this table reassure each of you that are Christ, that are in Christ. Let it reassure you of Christ's great love for you, his forgiveness of your sins, as well as your love for each other. And so cause us to grow in our love for Christ. And let this table also make us grow in our love for one another as well. Amen.